Dana and I really got to know one another well this week, didn't we? You wanted to get to know someone, spend a week in an Airbnb uh, with them. That's what we did as a staff. We all crammed into a house in a suburb of Nashville. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to make your way to Acts chapter 20. We're going to return to Acts. Um, Last week, we took a one-week break from our Acts series. Uh, We had Jim Pachta was a guest with us um, all weekend, and he was teaching us and instructing and and coming uh, to us with God's Word about gender and sexuality. So if you weren't here last week, you can go on the website and find his talks and uh, his sermon. They are live there, and you can listen to those if you uh, haven't, haven't had a chance to. But we're going to return to Acts this week, the second half of Acts 20, which begins on page 929. Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. That's the particular passage we're going to look at. Let me pray for us. And then we will read God's word together. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever because it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, your word cuts between bone and marrow, uh, between joint and sinew. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart Uh, Your word, when the Spirit goes before it, and because it is um, inspired by the Spirit, works in a way that that none of us can work on our own. And so I pray this morning as we read your word, and as I seek to be faithful and preach um, as best as I can uh, your word, I pray this morning you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and a receptive heart that you might work for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 20, we're going to pick up in verse 17. This is God's holy word. Now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. May God write his word upon our hearts. When you, when you spend as much time together as Jason and I do, you, you learn how to push each other's buttons, right? We've spent, seems like, countless time together over the past five and a half years. And uh, Jason has discovered a button of mine that he takes wicked delight in pushing. He will walk around the office humming a tune or singing a song that he knows I know. And he knows that when I hear it, it will get stuck in my head and I will be singing it um, for days on end. And it's just something when I hear a song. And so he'll find the most obscure song and he'll sing it because he knows I know it and he knows it'll drive me crazy and I'll be singing it. And he does it on purpose. And uh, he takes wicked delight in it. Uh, when I was a child, my, my dad sang this particular song, and it, it got stuck in my head. It's been stuck in my head for decades. And it's an old song by Hank Snow called I've Been Everywhere. I've crossed the deserts bare, man. I've breathed the mountain air, man. Travel I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. Reno, Fargo, Chi oh, Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Toronto, Sarasota, Oh, Buffalo, Toronto, Sarasota, Wichita, Ottawa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Oklahoma, Ottawa. I've been trying to memorize that song for 30 plus years. I always get stuck in Oklahoma. <laughs> the reason I thought about that, the reason that maybe bring this home, I'm getting, I'm getting far afield here, is because this past week I was pondering, what would that song sound like if Paul had written it? I've been to Antioch, Cyprus, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue. But that's the truth. Over the previous 10 years, Paul had been to so many places. It would sound like that song if that song was written by Paul. He had been to all these many places on three missionary journeys. And when we come to the end of verse 22, those missionary journeys are beginning to come to an end. His journeys are, are beginning to come to an end. He's going to travel a few more places. He's going to spend a, a season of his life in a couple of different prisons. This isn't the end of Paul's journeys or the end of his story, but it's the beginning of the end. And so here's how I want you to think about it. If you think about the book of Acts as a three-act play, we are now entering Act 3. Okay? This is the beginning of the end. From at the end of Acts 22 through Acts 28, this is 
the third act of Paul's life. And so here's the scene that we read about a moment ago. Paul and his companions were, were in Miletus. Miletus was a coastal city on the southwest uh, corner of what would be modern-day Turkey. And uh, the shipping schedules in that day, they didn't operate like a carnival cruise line. They weren't, they weren't set in stone. They didn't have firm departure and arrival times. And so Paul's in Miletus, and he's waiting for a ship, but they didn't have firm shipping schedules, so he had some downtime. And he thought a good use of that downtime would be to send a messenger 30 miles inland to Ephesus to invite the Ephesian elders to spend some days with him um, and to keep him company until his ship arrived. And here's what I want you to understand about Paul and his relationship with the Ephesians. Paul loved the Ephesians. He had spent over three years in Ephesus. Six years from this point, he will send Timothy, his most cherished disciple and friend, to serve as pastor of the church in Ephesus. He's, he's, he's sending his, 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 uh, his protege. He loved the Ephesians, and at this point, he doesn't expect to ever see these men again. One, one author says that Paul's speech, which is really verses 18 through 35, it's his final parting words to the, to the Ephesian elders. Um, one author says that this is, in a sense, his last will and testament to the churches that he dearly loves. It's a farewell address. It's a word of encouragement. It's a word of warning. And so in this speech, which we're going to focus on this morning, there is a specific message for the elders of the church. Paul, uh, as an apostle, is speaking particularly to the Ephesian elders. So there's a message here for elders, but there's also a more general message for every believer. And this morning, I want us to consider it from both perspectives. And so, um, fellow elders, there are some specific things here for us this morning, but for everyone um, there are some words of God to us. And so I have three things that I want to share with you this morning, three thoughts. First, I want you to consider how precious you are to God. I, I want you to consider that believers are a precious people. Friends, if you're a Christian, you are precious to God. How precious? Look at verse 28. God obtained you with his own blood. Some translations say the blood of his own son. That's how precious you are to God. You know, there are passages like John 3, 16 and, 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 and many others in, in, uh, in John's first uh, epistle, 1 John, that talk about the love of God. And you can hear over and over and over again that God loves you. You can hear that message. You can read that message that God loves you. But if you disconnect his love from the greatest act of love, which is the sacrifice of his own son, that he bought you with his own blood, then that love, um, that love will become hollow. God not only sent his only son for you, he adopted you as his son or daughter. Friends, you are precious to God. You know, I, I love many people, but if I'm honest, I'm not sure that I would give my life for many people. 
I'm not sure that I would give my life or the life of one of my children for, for the many people that I love. But I would give my own life for my wife. I would give my own life for my children. Not only do I love them, they are precious to me. They are more precious to me than anything in the world. And if you're married, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're married, I want you to think about just for a moment how precious your spouse is to you. If you're a parent, I want you to think about how precious your children are to you. And perhaps you're neither married nor a parent, but perhaps you can understand that relationship thinking of your own parents, how precious they are to you. Now, as precious as your spouse may be to you, as precious as a child may be to you, as precious as any earthly relationship may be, I want you to understand that you are more precious to God than anyone is to you. You are a precious people. God loves you so much that he demonstrated that love, Paul says in Romans 5, 8, by sending his son to die for you. You know, I, I think that we should regularly remind ourselves of the most absurd equation the, the, the equation that we are more sinful than we can possibly imagine. On your worst day, at your worst moment, you're worse. You're more sinful than you can possibly imagine, and at the same time, you are more loved than you ever dared hope. God loves you, and you are precious to him. And I just want to sit there for a moment. You're precious to God. It's one thing, you know, I, I, I use the word love almost indiscriminately, um, too casually. I love the Oklahoma Sooners. I love pizza. Um, I love the fall. I'm not talking about that kind of love, friends. He bought you with the blood of his own son. You are precious to him. And I've told you many times that the Christian life is, is a cruciform life that it's meant to take the shape of the cross. The cross was God's demonstration of how loved and precious you are to him. And because of that, we are meant as Christians to be precious to one another. We're a precious people, precious to God, but we're also meant to be precious to one another. Look down at the very end of this passage. At the very end, Paul kneels down and he prays with, with these people that he dearly loves and it says there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful that they would not see his face again. This scene here between Paul and the elders reveals a people that love one another, that are precious to one another. And earlier in his speech, Paul said, I do not account my life as any value or as precious to myself. Paul was saying, you are precious to me. The Corinthians were precious to Paul. The Philippians were precious to Paul. The believers that he met along the way were precious to him. So precious that he could sacrifice for them through tears and trials and not put himself per first, but put them first. And friends, this is the way that we are called to relate to and love one another. This scene here that we see unfolding between Paul and the Ephesian elders is the way that we are called to love one another. 
that we are precious to God and we are meant to be precious to one another. The thought of giving ourselves first, putting ourselves first. Paul quoting Jesus, it's better to give than to receive. It's not just monetarily or financially, but giving our whole selves. When Paul's writing to the Philippians, he uses Jesus as the archetype, the model. He did not hold on or cling to what was precious, his own, his own life, but instead he gave it for us, and we are called to relate that way to one another. You see, I, I, I believe one of the things the Lord wants us to see in this passage is, is this twofold thing of how precious we are to him, but also how precious we are meant to be with one another. How, how dearly we should love one another. And, and so let me just ask you that. Do you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? I don't expect you to answer, raise your hand, or answer out loud or anything like that. I don't expect you to give the Sunday school answer because you know you're called to love. If you're called to love even your enemy, surely you're called to love <laughs> the folks in here. But I mean, the kind of love that we see unfolding here, weeping and tears, sacrificially putting yourself in front of others. Do you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Now to my elders, to my brothers, I would ask you specifically, do you see the sheep of Christ Presbyterian Church as precious in God's sight? We're called to shepherd the flock of God among us, not begrudgingly, but because Jesus gave his life for those sheep. He bought them with his own blood. We are precious to God, and we must be precious to one another. One of the, uh, and I, I mentioned this a moment ago, one of the easiest ways to grasp how precious we are to God is by envisioning that parent-child relationship. I am firmly convinced that the parent-child relationship is the primary relationship that God intends for us to understand a relationship with him uh, through. God gave his son to make us his sons and daughters. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that he might adopt us and receive us as sons and, as sons and daughters. And because we are sons, we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. Because of what Christ did, we are now adopted. As Jason mentioned a moment ago, all that's true of Jesus is now true of us. All that is true of our elder brother, the firstborn among the dead, all that's true of him is now true of us as adopted sons and daughters. So this relationship of a parent to a child is how God would have us to relate to him when Jesus taught us to pray, when he taught the disciples to pray. He didn't say, when you pray, pray in this manner. Our high and holy sovereign, hallowed be thy name. That's true enough. He is a high and holy sovereign. He said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, Abba, who art in heaven. That parent-child relationship is, is, is how we are to understand God. And it helps us to capture the depth and the breadth of God's love. And so if you're a parent, I want to ask you, what lengths would you go to to protect your child? I have a friend who's a, his youngest daughter moved across a country to go to college, about eight states away. And during her freshman year, she was physically assaulted on campus. And she called her dad in tears. And her dad, who's my friend, he got in his car that night, and he drove all the way across the country to be with his daughter. 
to comfort her, to protect her. Do you think that God the Father would do anything less for you? The second thing I want you to consider is that believers are a protected people. Just like my friend who wanted to protect his daughter, just like you as a parent would do anything in your power to protect your child, you as a child of God are a protected people. So first, you're, you're protected by God himself. You, Christian, are protected by the personal and powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. So Paul tells us in this passage that he knew what awaited him. He knew that affliction and imprisonment awaited him. Where was his comfort? In the Holy Spirit. In verse 22, Paul said that he was going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen there. And that word constrained, it's used a handful of times in the New Testament. And one time it's translated bound. Another time it's translated held. Now I'm not sure which translation is better here, but I was coming across one of the church fathers who interpreted this verse a little bit differently, and I want to give you his interpretation, and I want to see how it sits with you. And so let's substitute the word constrained with the word held, which is how it's elsewhere translated in the New Testament. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem held by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen there. Was Paul constrained or guided by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely, but he was also guarded by the Holy Spirit. He was guided by the Holy Spirit, and he was guarded by the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for us. God has promised to never leave us or forsake us, and the way that he accomplishes that is by putting his Spirit within us. You are protected. In the way a, in the way a parent protects a child, by having the very presence of the Holy Spirit. And again, the Christian life is cruciform. So not only are we protected by God himself, but, but, the, but God has given his people elders, overseers, shepherds to protect the flock, to protect you. This is where I want to spend just a bit of time. Remember, Paul, again, is speaking specifically to elders, and he says to the Ephesian elders, give special attention to the flock, because they're precious to God. And know that in the coming days, fierce wolves are going to come in among you. And they're going to seek to scare you, and they're going to seek to scatter, and they're going to seek to wound the sheep. There's going to be folks from the outside who come in to the inside, and they're going to seek to disrupt the flock. He said there's also going to be those on the inside. Wolves in sheep's clothing that are going to work to disturb the sheep by distorting the message. And so, let me say a word to my brothers who are elders, to the six or eight or seven, nine men that we have. We have many responsibilities, brothers, but chief among them is to protect the sheep from harm that would come from outside the church, but even forces inside the church that seek to disrupt and harm this flock. Now, funny enough, we know that Paul's prediction came true. Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, he says, guard the flock, protect the people, because fierce wolves are going to come. And we know that actually came to pass, because he writes a letter to Timothy ten years later. Timothy's pastoring that church in Ephesus. 
And he again warned Timothy about the presence of false teachers. This is what happened. There were certain people within the church who had swerved from the simple gospel message. They began to major on the minors. And in 1 Timothy 1.6, one of Paul's last writings, he says, certain persons, by swerving, have wandered away into vain discussions. Oh, good Lord, how many Sunday school classes could that be categorized as? They've wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make such confident assertions. So Paul has given a warning here in Acts 22 to the Ephesian elders, a warning that came true when he writes to Timothy a decade later. And so, brothers, let me offer a word of caution to my, my, my fellow elders, also really a word of caution to every single Christian. We are in a spiritual battle. I want you to recognize that, to believe that, that we're in a spiritual battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That we are in a spiritual battle. And, and just the same way that my friend didn't take it lightly when his daughter was assaulted and wanted to protect her, your heavenly father doesn't take it lightly when you were assaulted when you are provoked by the enemy. He doesn't take it lightly when his children are provoked and attacked, and so he has given his church elders, elders who are called to act as tender warriors. And if anyone in the church seeks to disrupt the peace and the purity of the church, Paul says they're going to find no quarter here. So there's a word here for elders. Again, it is a, it is a last message to the elders. There's also a word here for every, every believer. A few years ago, um, I, think it was, I think it was about four, uh, three years ago, um, Cooper, who's my daughter, she was three at the time, and she was playing in the front yard, and I was sitting on the front porch watching her. And she started to dart out into the street for something. I don't know what it was, a ball or something like that. And and I saw a car coming down the street that she couldn't see. And so I yelled, Cooper, stop! And she, she immediately stopped, but she began to cry because she thought I was yelling at her. She didn't understand that my actions were for her protection. Now, I'm not saying that you should expect the elders of the church to yell at you. But what I'm saying is if you believe that God has put elders over you for your protection, for your good, then recognize that sometimes they see what you cannot, just in the same way I saw what Cooper could not. God has given protection for his people, both in the Holy Spirit and in elders. Here's a final thought. We are a, we are a precious people. No matter how much you may believe God loves you, he loves you far more than that. You are precious to him, so precious that he would give his own son's life. And you're protected in the same way that you would do anything to protect your own child from harm, from danger, from, from spiritual forces working from the outside or people who are disruptive working from the inside. God wants you to know that you are protected. But thirdly, you are provided for. You're provided for. God's plan for you 
Do you want to know his plan for you? I can tell you. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I don't know what five weeks or five years or anything. I don't know what will happen. But I know his plan for you is to mold you as a Christian into the image and likeness of Jesus. And he will finish what he started. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And so maybe the best news that I have for you this morning is that God is not finished with you yet. He's not finished with you yet. And God has provided everything necessary to finish what he started. That his plan is to mold you into the image and likeness of his son. And he'll finish what he started. And he gives you grace for it. Grace for the moment. Grace for each day and grace for the journey. And here's where I want you to settle. God's grace is his provision. God has provided for you, and God's grace is his provision. So remember the scene here in in, uh, Acts 22. Paul is about to leave his dear friends. He's about to leave his fellow laborers. Paul had trained these men. We, we know from earlier in Acts on Paul's missionary journeys that he would go from place to place. It says establishing elders in each of these places. So he would go from place to place. Paul had trained these men. He had um, appointed these men. He loved these men. He had just told them that tough times were on the horizon. And so what message would he leave them with? Expecting to never see them again, what message would he leave them with? What word of encouragement would he offer? Look at verse 32. And now, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What what final parting word is Paul going to leave with them? Brothers, I leave you, and I commend you to God and to his grace. Um, And by the way, it's that very grace that's going to finish what has started It's that very grace that's going to bring you into your inheritance. It's God's grace that they needed. It's God's grace that will build them up and sustain them. God's grace is his provision for us, and his provision is never in short supply. And what I want you to understand is this means that God has given you everything you need to grow and flourish. He's not holding anything back from you. God has given you everything you need to be built up and to grow into the image and likeness of Christ. He's provided for you. And this also means that you shouldn't look elsewhere for provision. Paul's uh, parting words, not farting words, parting words. His parting words were, I commend you to the grace of God. I commend you to his grace. He doesn't say, okay, you do your part and let God do his part. He says, I commend you to God's grace. Now, I want you to understand there's an element of truth. There's an element of truth in saying that we have a part to play. It's true. Paul tells us, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day. He tells us in all these things in verse 35, I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of Jesus. He tells us that we have a part to play, that elders have a part to play, that elders are called to actively care for the church, but he roots this in God's care for the church. 
that elders protect the sheep because the Spirit is the one ultimately protecting the sheep. That Christians must fight against sin in a spiritual battle, but all of that has been provided for in His grace. And so what I want you to understand, really the last thing I want to leave you with, is that you're provided for. You're provided for. That God has given you His grace, and that's all that you need. So this week, when you, when you face some obstacle, I don't know what that'll look like, but but perhaps it'll be some form of spiritual warfare. Perhaps, perhaps you'll wonder if God really cares. I want you to remind yourself that you're precious to Him. Does God really care about my work situation or lack of work? Does, does God really care that I'm struggling with this, um, with, 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 with this pattern of addiction? Does God really care that my marriage is a sham? I want you to remind yourself that you're precious to him. As much as you would care for your own, he cares for you. Remind yourself that you're protected in him. Right? That whatever it is, he's, he's intended for you to be cared for and protected. The practical way you can put, put feet to that is know that you're always welcome, always welcome to come to the elders here in the church for prayer and for guidance and for any kind of assistance. That he's given you the Holy Spirit, but sometimes, sometimes we, we, we long for something a bit more tangible. And remind yourself that you don't have to go it alone. In fact, if you try to go it alone, you actually negate the grace of God. You negate his provision. And so let's praise God this morning. Let's thank him for his grace, for his love, for his guidance, for his goodness. That is, as much as we may think that he loves us, he loves us even more than we can possibly imagine. And then let's seek to put tangible hands and feet to that and love one another with the love of Christ, to put others first, to not put ourselves above one another, to care for one another, knowing that God has cared for us. Let's, let's pray that now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace and your goodness, and in the same way that, that we receive the words of your love, but sometimes those words can, can ring a bit hollow. Sometimes they, they fall short of resonating with us, even though they're true. Um, in in the opposite way, saying that we love you it's, it, uh, and thank you seems short. It seems to fall short. Um, we, we want to express that in, in some more meaningful way, but it's the words you've given us to say thank you, thank you, thank you. That you gave your son so that we might be sons and daughters. Thank you. That you, um, you regard us with the love and affection that you have for Jesus that we are precious to you. Father, I pray for myself and for Jason and for our ruling elders who seek to shepherd and to lead the church that we would be diligent to act as tender warriors, that we would fight those wolves that are dressed in sheep's clothing who come into the church seeking to disrupt the peace and the purity of the church, and we would guard the church from outside influences that might seek to distract her from mission. That we would all lean into and rely on the Holy Spirit. 
And that's, that's the final thing we will pray this morning, Father, that the Holy Spirit would work within us and among us because all of this, all of, all of the ways that we see the church acting and living and behaving and, and, and elders serving, um, this deep affection that Christians have for one another, all of that uh, has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, would you work to show us our sin, to draw us closer to our Savior, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, to make us, to make us more and more into that beautiful bride that you, that you have declared us to be. Make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.